Okay, my name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames Cast and this is going to be my 2021 review show. It's not going to be particularly long, I have to say, um, and I'm not really going to be talking about the films um, at any particular great length. I just thought I would kind of, it's always nice to do these episodes. You might find a few films that I watched that you didn't, that you might want to check out. You might not. Um, you can also send me your recommendations, but uh, there will be a Blu-ray recommendation at the end of this episode as well. But before I get to my uh, top 10, just a quick note on something that happened uh, relatively recently L long story short basically a few years ago i was introduced online to by mutual friends to someone who was a film academic they've got a few published books um they go around kind of giving lectures and whatnot and we were introduced to each other very quickly became apparent that this person and i had radically different views on almost every subject pertaining to film um, and there were a few quite tetchy exchanges on Twitter. And about two years ago, I just unfollowed them because I thought, oh, this is just pointless. And I've, I've, I've started doing that a lot more on Twitter, actually. It's not to kind of like, so I live in an echo chamber. It's just that what is the point in interacting with people and their followers when it just ends, seems to always end up being some kind of rather tiresome argument. And a few weeks ago, this person actually contacted me and noticed that I'd unfollowed them and um, asked me why basically and I told them why um, and I'd actually unfunded them about two years previously and we had this email exchange and this person actually asked if they could be a guest on the podcast and perhaps we could um, find some kind of common ground through dialogue and I actually thought this was a really interesting idea because a lot of the interactions we have on Twitter uh, there's no way you would talk to someone the way we do on Twitter if we kind of were meeting them face to face as it were and I thought well why not let's see if we you know I can have a productive interesting conversation with someone who I've had profound disagreements with over on social media and let's try and see if we can have a conversation like two adults so we picked a date um it was a Sunday evening, came on, and we lasted 15 minutes. It was a complete car crash. Um, we didn't even hit record in the end. Um, it was an absolute nightmare of a conversation. I think even what I realised was very quickly that there was a level of personal animosity, um, not so much me to them, but them to me, that was going to make even having, even trying to attempt to have some kind of dialogue completely impossible. And um, it was slightly depressing because you think to yourself, you know, I'm 42 years old, this person I think is almost the same, same age. And it was like, well, you know, if we can't actually sit down like adults and have an adult conversation, then it's a pretty sad state of affairs. And it kind of led me to think that this pretty much is the state of film discourse a lot of the time, on, especially on social media. I seem to recall when I started listening to podcasts, you'd go on the forum for that podcast and you'd just interact with like-minded, nice people. And you'd actually kind of, you know, talk about films in a kind of celebratory manner. Whereas what you tend to find on Twitter is people, someone will write some nonsense that, I don't know, like Spielberg's never made a good film or something like that. And that person knows what they're doing. There'll be a pile on, there'll be a fucking idiot this and you that and you that. And it just devolves and it, be, it becomes quite frustrating, to be honest with you. So what I'm going to do on this podcast is not only, so what I'm going to do on this podcast going forward is I'm going to try and promote other podcasts or YouTube channels or anything I see where I think kind of like people are actually having interesting film conversations and film debates or whatnot because I think it's really important to move away what I from what I think is a slightly nihilistic rather unpleasant way in which people are interacting 
about film and actually kind of you know, hopefully you know you can as i have over the past few months discover some really some really great content so that will start in the next episode of the 24 frames cast but right now i am going to crack on with my top 10 films of 2021 and i think it's worth um just saying from the off that this list is pretty interchangeable up until the film that's number one which was categorically my favorite film of the year um hopefully there's a few films on this list that you might not have uh, uh, been able to catch up on them and certainly i i do actually really enjoy um seeing what other people have put down on their list so if you have any recommendations for me that you aren't on my list please do email me or tweet or whatever um so let's just kind of crack on with things then so so at number 10 then is Gianfranco ross's documentary notrino and this is a it was made over three years uh, on the borders between iraq kurdistan syria and lebanon and if you listen to my last episode you'll know i have a problem with documentary form i.e too much editing too much music too many talking heads and this film is the complete antithesis of that it is stripped of all documentary conventions there's no voiceover talking heads or experts there's no captions telling you where we are or who we who we're following and Ross's documentary style is incredibly observational he will just literally point the camera at something and what you tend to do and I, I for me, I, I really responded to this type of filmmaking. I, I could just quite happily stare at the screen. And you find yourself, or at least I did, uh, trying to build narratives in your own head. You wonder about, um, for example, there's a, um, it looks like a fort or a kind of base where it's been manned by um, some Kurdish fighters. And you're kind of wondering, well, you know, is there an attack coming? And you just sort of kind of sit there and observe these people going about their daily routines. And although it never comes, there's always this kind of ever-present threat that something's about to happen. And for a lot of people, I think they will find this film incredibly boring. Um, it does function, I think, in a way like an art installation. But I was absolutely transfixed by it. I mean, there was one scene in particular, it's probably the most kind of... Um, I probably might stand out scene of the year really where we go to a prison and there's no talking there's n nothing really but we just see what I assume are a group of ISIS prisoners and the film doesn't ask any questions it just shows them in the kind of exercise yard and then going back to the cell and there must be over 200 prisoners in one cell and they don't even appear to have beds some of them just what looks like a quite thin mattress and I began to think to myself you know well, what do we do with these people um what you know I'm, I'm assuming that a great deal many of them are probably rapist murderers you know we know about the um genocide that was a, committed against the yazidis and you look at these people and you think well what what are we going to do with them you know what are they in this? and they do appear to be in a kind of um purgatory in this prison and um, the, the film really had me thinking and it's there's an abstraction to a lot of it as well like you will hear gunfire in the distance but you won't kind of it won't be explained who's shooting at who and you just see people trying desperately to go about their lives in this incredibly challenging and awful world and um yeah i i was i was absolutely transfixed by it i think all the reasons i like it will be people will be the reasons why people turn around and say it's not for them but for me it was a really really interesting work and again as someone who kind of is not enjoying the current form of documentaries this was it's actually on movie at the moment if you are interested in streaming it at number nine then it was paul schrader's the card counter 
And I am a huge Oscar Isaac fan. He's probably one of my favorite actors working today. So I was really intrigued um, as to how this one was gonna play out. And The Card Counter is bar none, I think, the feel bad movie of the year. And I think a lot of that comes from Paul Schrader's um, kind of outlook at film. He, he didn't grow up um, enjoying films in the same way a lot of people did. He didn't kind of see the wonder in them. He was, his mother was very much opposed to him going to the cinema. And I think there's a, there is a real nihilism in his films. I mean, you, you know, you need to go back and watch, you know, like, Taxi Driver and the like to, to kind of see that. Um, and the, the card counts, make no mistake about it, it's a very hard film. There are scenes, there's this kind of I'm assuming it's the Abu Ghraib um, torture, prisoner abuse scandal. And you kind of see this flashback to it where it's kind of shot through this fisheye lens. And it was nightmarish and abstract and quite unsettling. And it's not an, it's certainly not an easy film to enjoy. I didn't like the ending at all. And I think it was because I really did come to kind of care about the characters. But it, it was a really compelling film. I mean, I, I was absolutely transfixed by it. Big shout out to, to the actress Tiffany Haddish, who I thought was absolutely brilliant in this film. Um, I, I'm not really following award season at all, and I'm, I'm, I'm quite surprised that I haven't heard her being kind of nominated and receiving awards for the performance, because I thought it was quite brilliant. But uh, yeah, definitely The Card Counter, one I can recommend. The, the, the strange thing is, I don't think I could ever watch this film again. I, I don't, I, unless I was doing some sort of Paul Schrader retrospective, then I'd probably go back to it. But it's not to say that I, you know, the fact I didn't want to, I won't, won't want to watch it again. It's just, it's a very intense, quite um, unsettling experience, but a, a, a really interesting and gripping film as far as I'm concerned. Uh, next up was the cinema debut of Emma Sligman and her film uh, Shiva Baby, which she wrote and directed. And this was one of the unexpected delights of the year for me. The film is about a young girl who goes to a young Jewish girl who goes to a wake. And at that at this wake, she discovers that her sugar daddy is there. And this made for one of the most stressful, claustrophobic films I saw all year. And I was laughing a lot. It is genuinely hilarious at times. Um, and it plays like one of the most nail-biting thrillers you've ever seen, all shot in one house. It's a really interesting um, concept. A film of this type can't be very long. Shiva Baby is only 78 minutes and it was legitimately, I mean, I, I, at times I was laughing, I had my head in my hands. The performance by Rachel Senat, Shiva, was absolutely brilliant. Again, um, quite surprised that she hasn't kind of found herself being nominated for anything. And I honestly believe that Emma Schleiman, I think she could be a kind of female Woody Allen-esque filmmaker. I really hope she kind of stays in this kind of, mid to low budget indie world because I think there's definitely she's definitely from what the evidence I've seen in this film has a voice which I think could be really interesting in years to come um, again Shiva Baby is actually streaming at the moment on Mubi as well I love watching films on IMAX at the Printworks in Manchester it is a really uh, immersive audio visual tree and I found the right film for that in this year's Dune, by, directed by Denis Villeneuve. Um, there's not really much to say other than the fact that I, 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 I enjoy the film now a lot more than I did when I watched it, because if it hadn't had a sequel green, I, I, I think this definitely would not have made my top 10. I would have probably never have watched it again, because what would have been the point? But 
I was absolutely enthralled by Dune. I know a lot of people have, have made comments that, you know, it's not as good as the David Lynch version, which is complete horseshit. It, it, it certainly is. Um, but it was the big, grand, epic science fiction film that I wanted. And I, I, I really responded to it. I absolutely loved the score by Hans Zimmer, which feels almost like a soundscape at times. And it's one of those few soundtracks that I've listened to quite a few times without over this year, sorry, over the past year. Um, I've actually subscribed to um, Tidal um, to see what that's like. And you can actually get a Dolby Atmos version of the soundtrack on that. And uh, it's so engaging, so batshit crazy at times. But also I think the film looks gorgeous as well. And I, I just the, the, the apps, the set design, the costume design, everything about it kind of ticked a lot of boxes for me. I think it all kind of I think once it gets that sequel, I think people who are a bit iffy about it will kind of find a new appreciation of it. And it wasn't obviously a huge hit as well. And I, I find it a bit weird that it was released on HBO Max because if there was a film that you know should get people going to the cinema, this was it. Next up was Paolo Sorrentino's The Hand of God. And this is a deeply autobiographical film um, in which I think Sorrentino is mining his childhood adolescent experiences film well, set in Naples in 1980 there was the city is becoming increasingly excited that a young prompt upcoming footballer called Diego Maradona might be signing for Napoli and it's a coming of age tale in every regard there's um forbidden love there's uh losing one's virginity the loss of parents etc and I, I was, despite the fact that the film is all over the place at times, um, it does, I think, all come together fairly satisfyingly. It did feature one of my favourite scenes of the entire year, which is when the character, the young character Filippo, goes to the island of Stromboli. And it reminded me of that film, which I love anyway. But you can just hear the volcano in the background and then the kind of the rumbling and the explosions. And I was kind of, I, I mean, I love Italian films and I, I have a bit of a, a real love of that country. And I, I was just completely swept away by it. And like I said, I'm not sure it all does come together quite coherently. And it, sometimes you are a bit like, oh, you know, where are we? Where are we going? And, um, you know, was that scene completely necessary? But for me, I was completely into it. Uh, it was scenery porn at its best i think and it's such a cinematic film and i know it had it kind of i only watched it on netflix and i'm kicking myself that i didn't go to the cinema to watch it but sometimes that is the i suppose that's the um the the double-edged sword of netflix i mean i'm glad they're making these films but they do sometimes take out the i suppose necessity to go to the cinema because you can watch it anytime you want and i think the, the timings for the hand of god weren't quite great for me i don't i don't like going to the cinema in the evenings I, I sort of like to do it during the day or during the morning and i think the, the only kind of screens i could go to were like nine o'clock and that makes getting home a bit of a pain in the ass so i did only catch this on netflix in the end but i'm pretty certain this one will end up on the criterion collection and i would really like to see a uhd of this one because i think it could look even better than it did even it looked pretty great on streaming anyway so that was the hand of god next up as well was a real surprise to me which was ridley scott's the last duel this is easily, I think, his best film in quite a few, probably since The Martian, actually. And um, I was absolutely transfixed by this film. I know a lot of people have dismissed it as kind of being a bit sort of 
of a Me Too cash-in. I didn't get that at all. And I actually thought that in the age where we kind of talked about like kind of microaggressions as being the kind of the worst that set a worst kind of part of sexism and whatnot or the gender pay gap i think this film kind of really brought home just how god awful um, being a woman has been <laughs> historically and i was absolutely transfixed by it. it's beautifully filmed gorgeously cinematic and the actual last jewel was it was up there with kind of Shiva Baby for like the kind of the, the absolute stress that it managed to invoke. And the kind of like the, the caveat that if um, Matt Damon loses the duel, the girl's going to be burnt at the stake. I was just like, Jesus Christ, this is um, not fun to watch. And the, the fact the film just received such mediocre reviews and terrible box office. And it, it left me wondering, like, am I seeing something that isn't there or are these people wrong? And I think the people who just dismissed this film as being rather average and lightweight, I, I really think are going to be proved wrong. I think in years to come, this film is going to be critically um, re-evaluated. And I think it will go down as something as a modern classic. And that, if, you know, from Ridley Scott, that, that is often what happens with his films, and certainly in the case of Blade Runner. But yeah, The Last Jewel, available now on Disney Plus as well. Okay, so next up was Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog, um, a gothic western that really had me on the edge of my seat throughout, partly because Benedict Cumberbatch's performance. Um, I was never comfortable um, with this character. I was always expecting him or wondering if he was going to do something completely terrible. A really compelling um, performance, um, but if, I think everyone in this film, Kirsten Stunts, Jesse Kerlin, uh, Jesse Plemons, sorry, um, Cody Schmidt McPhee, were all so good. I think this was the ensemble piece of the year for me. And I know a lot of people have didn't like the kind of the direction that the film went in in the end. And although I kind of, I, I did, I, I, had, I had a feeling which was proved right where the character arc was heading, um, but. I just love the interplay, the kind of the, the slow burning malice that was going on in the background and just this kind of sense that you were never quite sure or comfortable with the direction of the film. Um, it reminded me of There Will Be Blood, I think, in its kind of tone and its bleakness. And I, I, what I love about, and I, I, did, I did watch a lot of Westerns last year, and it's always interesting to see directors come in and take a look at the genre and kind of both kind of present you with conventions of the Western as Stetsons and cowboys and whatnot, but then also bring something fresh to the table. And I think The Power of the Dog certainly did that. Again, another Netflix film. And again, another film that I didn't go to the cinema to watch and instead I watched on Netflix. And again, I think this is another film which I can definitely see um, finding its way into the Criterion Collection. And again, I would be, I would be really interested to see this um, on a UHD release. Um, because the, I know, it was, I know it was set in America, but it was also um, filmed in New Zealand. And I think that also because it, that I suppose that kind of, the fact that it's not being filmed in America, but it's obviously set in America, it kind of gives it a kind of slightly otherworldly kind of like different look. And I think it would look absolutely um, incredible on UHD. And I know it was a while it was filmed on um, Arri, quite large Arri Alexa cameras. So certainly one, certainly one that I hope to see again. And uh, it, 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 it's a strange one, the paradox, because I would love to, because I think sometimes when I watch films and I'm a little bit, and certainly in one of the films I'll be talking about in a minute, 
sometimes when I'm expecting something bad to happen, I, I do, I do find second viewings of films like this to be a little bit more um, rewarding because I think I'm not trying to second guess what's going on in screen on screen. So hopefully I will. Um, well, hopefully if it does get a uh, a UHD release um, soon, I'll I, I definitely very much look forward to going back to it. And number three, another Netflix film and another female director. In this case, it was uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal's The Lost Daughter. And this film, I, I mean, um, Olivia Colman seems to be in everything at the moment. I have absolutely no problem with that because, again, she's absolutely superb in this film. And it's one of the most intelligent looks at what I think is for many quite a taboo subject. And I'm not going to kind of go into too much detail about what the film is actually about because I don't want to kind of give any spoilers i know a lot of people have been quite hesitant to watch this thinking i think they have the kind of the view that it's going to be a bit kind of like melodramatic play of the week type stuff and it really isn't i think maggie Gyllenhaal is on this evidence got a really exciting future ahead of her as a director i found it to be a very claustrophobic intense film and it does kind of tonally shift i think about halfway through we kind of get a lot more flashbacks to the olivia wilde character and kind of like you, you come to understand um, the person that she is through those and I, I, some people again I think have, have made the point that they found the kind of the flashback sequences um, kind of derailed the film a little bit or kind of made it seem kind of all over the place again and I, I didn't get that at all I, I actually thought that they really kind of hammered home what was going on with the character and again this was another film where I was kind of always expecting something bad to happen and the, the the ending I thought was actually quite uplifting in a way. And I know certainly um, it, it was quite personal to me and my girlfriend, this film for reasons which I don't really want to go into, but certainly um, it was an unexpected treat. And I, I didn't, I didn't think it was going to make my top 10 at all. And I, I, again, another Netflix one, but you know, full credit to them because they do seem to be kind of really, I think making films, which for adults and these you know these aren't sequels prequels and you know, not marvel films they seem to be kind of one-off cinematic um films that remind me of um certainly kind of like in the the last part of the kind of the, oh, the, the first part of the decade when you had kind of like the the sony classic type films i think netflix has really kind of nailed that market and long may it continue and it's great that they're giving um you know the people like maggie general the, the chance to, to kind of earn their stripes directing and again I, I really think that on the evidence of this she's going to be someone who I'm going to be really interested in and next up is another film directed by a woman in this case directed by Chloe Zhao and um, I know this film was released in America in 2019 but we didn't get it uh, sorry in 2020 but we didn't get it till 2021 in the UK and um, just an absolutely beautifully directed written and acted film and I think thoroughly deserving of the um, best picture win that it got. Uh, it's again another kind of like reinvention of the road movie in the western, and I think this time it kind of does it through, obviously the eyes of the Francis McDormand character, but also kind of through this kind of prism of kind of the current economic status of the world. You know, kind of um, people kind of migrating from job to job. I thought there was echoes of um, Days of Heaven in this film. I I, I really did. I it felt like that vibe to me and what I think was kind of interesting was again I had that other expectation that something bad was going to happen in this film and I think on the first viewing that that was kind of my, my I, I was worrying for the character as it were and when I went back 
um, kind of watched it free of that. I really think this film is a modern classic. I was absolutely transfixed by it. I think it's beautiful. I'm just a bit disappointed that Chloe Zhao has kind of been hoovered up into the Marvel um, universe. And I don't know if she's kind of done the um, the Eternals, but I, I really enjoyed songs my brothers taught me, The Rider, um, and obviously Nomadland. And I thought there was a kind of a, a Kelly Reichardt um, a, sli a, a slightly more cinematic version of Kelly Reichardt as well. And to go off and do The Eternals, I was a little bit disappointed with that. And also, what really is she going to bring to those films? I, I think, you know, I, I know most Marvel, you know, the second unit stuff for all the special effects and whatnot. And um, I hope she goes back. I hope, I hope she doesn't kind of end up in that sort of just directing blockbusters. I really, I mean, I think she's a really interesting voice. And on the... the um, evidence of Nomadland. I, I really hope that that is the realm that she sticks. But time will tell. And I, I hope, you know, I'm certainly incredibly interested in where her career goes. And the film, which was my number one, and this was by far in advance the most fun I had all year. It takes a lot to make me laugh. And this film had me absolutely wetting myself. It was just precisely the right film at the right time. And it was Thomas Vinterberg's Another Round, starring Mads Mikkelsen. Um, this is a black comedy drama that it's not often that I watch a film and then watch it again a few days later and then again. And this this year, I watched Another Round four times, twice on my own and twice with my girlfriend who loved it as well. And it's just brilliant. The, the, the story revolves around Mads Mikkelsen who, and his friends who are school teachers in Denmark who are kind of having a bit of a midlife crisis and they're not really kind of um, doing as well as they thought, or they kind of feel their lives are in a bit of a rut. And they discover that the kind of there's some piece of philosophy that suggests that the best way to actually be is always have a certain amount of alcohol in the system. So they kind of come up with a few rules and as, as to how much booze they should always be on and are kind of let loose on the world. And what happens is they start to um, perform really well on their jobs. Um, Mads Mikkelsen's wife is kind of like thinks he's, kind of returned as a man and of course it all starts to go hideously wrong um one of the group tommy um can't quite keep things under control and it's a really interesting look at i think people's relationship with alcohol i am i i do drink too much i'm nowhere near an alcoholic um doing it wrong but i will look for reasons to have a drink if i pay if i do something which i feel is like good i will reward myself with a bit of drink and my, it's and a friend of mine the other day said you know uh he only limits himself now to three cans a night as opposed to five. And I, I, I kind of jokingly said, you know, he's, he's doing so well to kind of cut out those two other cans. But yeah, I absolutely adored this film. It's brilliant. It's hilarious. It's tragic. Um, it's everything you want to be. And the ending of it, um, I, I just thought was such a joy. Um, I, as I understand, I think it is going to be getting a remake um, with Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, in the lead role I mean I, I would actually be quite interested to see what, to see where that goes but yeah my number one film of 2021 Thomas Vinsberg's um, Another Round it's on Sky Movies at the moment if you've got Sky and I cannot recommend it enough but that was it for 2021 um, overall I thought it was actually quite a decent year for films I certainly enjoyed myself a lot um, there was always something for me to be interested in my aim for this year is to try and get to the cinema a lot more I think now kind of like with hybrid working and whatnot and there will be the uh, the opportunity to kind of go to the cinema after work which is what i used to like doing so um i mean yeah i'm generally quite excited to see where things are going it was interesting how many films i did see on netflix I, I think it's really um 
I really think that their kind of domination of cinema is is just going to get more and more. And if they're making the type of films that they are, then I'm quite happy for it to go in that direction. I am going to make a point, though, of trying to see more stuff in the cinema that they release, because I think I, I really missed out, certainly with um, The Power of the Dog and The Hand of God. But um, we shall see. Stand still. Right, what's your name? Roisin Sweeney. Roisin? How do you spell that? R-O-Y-S-I-N. Address? 48 Conroy Street. Okay, so anyone who listens to this podcast will know that I have a affiliation for Ireland, um, having had been in a relationship with a girl there for four years. So I'm always interested in Irish films and Irish history and the experience of living in Ireland. And I was really kind of delighted when I came across the film Meave. Now, this was made in 1981 by the... Um, she's largely called an Irish feminist filmmaker. Um, I have This is the only film of Pat Murphy's that I've ever seen. And um, I suppose if you were to take this as a kind of an example of a work, you can certainly see where the kind of the, the feminism comes from. But Meave is a really interesting film because it follows a character called Meave, played by uh, Mary Jackson, who lives in London and goes to art college there. She's studying photography and she returns to Northern Ireland. And what I think this film does is it really shows what was going on in Ireland during the Troubles. And there was, for most parts, a, a kind of like very much a media blackout on the mainland as what was going on. The narrative of Northern Ireland was very strictly controlled by the government. I mean, to give some examples, I mean, where my ex-girlfriend lived in uh, Armagh, it was known by the military as bandit country and especially around the area near cross mcglen near the border it was really a, a pretty much guerrilla war going on and not that it, you know this was not really reported all that much on the news and what i feel this film does brilliantly is it really captures a time and a place and it shines a light on what was going on in northern ireland but it does it through the character of me with this feminist slant which I, I guess on paper doesn't sound particularly interesting, but this was very much a typical film that was being made by the BFI at the time. At the time, it had a budget of about a hundred thousand pounds, and it was very much an experimental film. There is a, so many different um, narrative techniques being used in this film. There's several flashbacks. We see kind of Meve as a young girl, as a teenager, and possibly even flash forwards into her life. Um, especially in relationship to her with her boyfriend Liam, and I'll talk about that a little bit in a minute. But these flashbacks and flash forwards, as it might be, are never really announced. We're just suddenly dumped into a vignette that gives a better understanding of Meve's life and really what has kind of formed her opinions. The the kind of attacks, the, the sorry, the um, confrontation she has with um, a local bully when she's a kid or when she's a teenager at school being taught by nuns and then she suddenly gets herself beaten up by the police. And all this kind of like goes on while she's coming back to Northern Ireland to visit her sister and her mother and father. And it's quite an angry film, I feel, because kind of Meave's 
kind of main issue with her life is, and kind of her, her kind of position in life, is that she sees the struggle for Irish republicanism, but she also sees it juxtaposed with the struggle for feminism, with what it means to be a female in that struggle. And as she, there's several scenes with her boyfriend Liam in which they're having quite um, philosophical and sociological debates as to the nature of the struggle and me and how she feels about it. And this is kind of done in an almost Brechtian way. Um, it's the, the dialogue. I don't, there's, I don't think there's any kind of attempt really at making it particularly naturalistic. These conversations that she has with Liam don't feel like they're off the cuff. They, you really get the impression that this is a kind of very much in your face. And when I mean in your face, it's me having taking issue really and confronting the kind of in the inbuilt inbuilt contradictions into kind of supposed freedom movements because her kind of biggest beef is that you know as a woman she still doesn't have um, anonymity over her own body um, she lives in a if she were to get pregnant you know she would not be able to have an abortion she has no choice and she has these also kind of like very interesting conversations with her sister um, Rosin played by Bridge Breenan about how as women, and especially through their mother as well, they are within this kind of repressed Republican movement. They are also a repressed subgroup in, in that. And this is something that like, really resonated with me because I, I was having this debate with someone, I know someone who's one of these diehard free Palestine people, and not to say I don't sympathise with the Palestinian cause, but I've always wondered what a free Palestine would look like for a woman. Who lives there and I dare say it would look startlingly like the Palestine that they live in now and the film I think it's an angry film me I, I really do think there is a um, unapologetic confrontational tone to it Me's boyfriend Liam um, he becomes quite an annoying figure. I mean, I don't, I hate to use the term mansplaining, but he does kind of patronize her a little bit and kind of makes comments about the fact that she's gone over to London to kind of study what he sees as a kind of completely pointless and self-indulgent pursuit of photography when there is something so important going on and the film I I don't really think it kind of offers you clear-cut solutions there's no kind of like conclusions that the film is offering you I think it's very much just kind of putting some ideas and some points of view out there and very much kind of letting you decide what you want to take out of it. But what was fascinating for me is how this film works as a historical document because you see the oppression of the Troubles and it's the British who are doing the oppressing. For example, there's one scene when um, Rosin's coming back from her job and she gets stopped by some soldiers and they demand to know where she lives and because of the kind of the difficulties in understanding the language they kind of get her address wrong and then she has to spell it out for them and then when they escort her back to the house Meve opens the door and the first thing they say is well we've only got down here um, that three people are supposed to live here so you know who are you and what are you doing here and it seems kind of quite benign but the blissful ignorance that the most of us were living in during the troubles i can't imagine what it'd be like to have soldiers walking down the road stopping you demanding where you're going 
and you see that a lot. And there's one scene where Meeve um, and Rosin and some friends go out to a nightclub, and as they're coming back, just gunshots start ringing out across the the city, and they're kind of getting close to them. And you're not sure if it's the British shooting at them or it's their own side, or they're just being caught in the crossfire. And there's a real kind of surreal element to it. And um, what's more kind of shocking is how they kind of like they just laugh it off as if it's just normal life. And of course, it's not normal life. And it, this film was shot in Belfast, which is incredibly rare for films about the troubles which were being made at the time. And you get a real sense that this is a world so far removed from the one that most of the British Isles were completely comfortable in. Murphy shoots the film in a 4-3 frame and it was shot on super 16mm, and it's not the most beautiful looking of films you've seen, but it has, I think, a kind of Jean-Luc Godard look and feel to it. There's an urgency, I think, to it, a um, a real sense that it's taking place in, 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 in the here and now, which obviously, I mean, however many 40-odd years later, obviously, and the film has a real sense that it's being shot on the fly, and I think there's an authenticity almost, and and despite the fact that the film does play around with various kind of cinematic techniques, Meeve's father occasionally gives these kind of stories where he kind of like breaks the fourth wall and just starts talking to the camera. And there's other kind of like little weird elements, like there's a same repeating male character who turns up as a complete male chauvinist pig or just a sleazy man in different scenes. And I didn't really notice that until I kind of um, kind of rewound and went through it again. And it's little kind of touches like that. But for all this kind of like surrealist and wall-breaking, the film does have, I think, a very gritty, real aesthetic to it. You get a sense, you know, that this is taking place in a very specific time. There's posters on the wall for like UB40 and kind of things like that. And it feels like an important historical document that's also making, I think, some really profound and quite controversial still points. And I wouldn't say that Meave is a particularly um, entertaining film in that regard, but the final, the, f the film's finale, which takes place on the Giant's Causeway, I thought was really moving when Meave, her mother and the sister just kind of start swigging from a bottle whilst a kind of a madman sort of shouts at the sea. And there was a real kind of um, sense that you're watching a coming of age story and you have to give it the put it through the context of when it was made. No one knew what was going to happen with Ireland. No one knew what was going to, what the peace process was going to be like, if there was ever going to be an end to it. And obviously, I think kind of through time, we can say that Meeb's future from the perspective of now would probably be looking up. But I can imagine at the time, the future was completely unknown. And I'm sure it was extremely hard to see not so much a happy ending but an ending that would or even a way in which peace in Northern Ireland could be achieved and you can see the conflict in me you know does she, does she stay and kind of live a very kind of boxed in life or does she leave and have that feeling that perhaps she's turning her back on what so many of her countrymen feel is so important to them so really interesting film it's available on the bfi i've got a blu-ray out on it I, I believe i think i've seen it in fop at the moment for like six quid or something and it only came out quite recently so um it's way well worth a rental i think you can also watch it on the bfi app so that was meave 
that's going to be it for this episode of the 24 frames cast a little bit off the cuff to be brutally honest with you i just wanted to kind of record my thoughts very briefly and get them out so um i know it's got kind of none of the normal kind of like production behind it but again it was only supposed to be a very brief episode um, many thanks for listening i'll be in contact soon you can follow me on twitter at 24 framescast you can email me at 24 framescast at gmail.com the master of cinema cast will be returning very soon as well so many thanks for listening and i'll be in contact soon bye <laughs>